0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 43. I want you to try to think about a situation where what you wanted or what you needed Depended on the favor of someone else. Maybe you had put in a job application and were hoping to become hired. Maybe you were just pulled over by a police officer for speeding and you really couldn't afford to get a ticket. Maybe you had just put in an offer on a house and you were hoping that the offer would be accepted. Maybe you've met somebody that you really liked, and you were hoping that they would like you. The situations are varied, but the feelings in those situations are the same. You see, in this story today, for Jacob and his sons, everything depends upon the favor of one man, the governor of Egypt. Egypt. Jacob's family needs food. Egypt is the only place to get food. And getting food from Egypt depends on being able to stand before the face of one man. The problem is is that the last time that the brothers stood before this man, he told them not to return unless they brought their youngest brother, Benjamin, If they were to come without Benjamin, they would surely not have his favor. But to take Benjamin down to Egypt might possibly mean that Benjamin would be lost to his family. He could be taken as a slave or worse. That creates the crucible of which God brings Jacob and his family. Jacob and his family are between a rock and a hard place. It is a place that we often find ourselves. It is not a comfortable place. But it is the sort of place that God uses to change his people. Over the past several weeks, we have seen how Joseph's brothers have acted in evil ways We have seen them be motivated by greed, selfishness, jealousy, and hatred. But now we are in the process of witnessing these same men demonstrate honesty, humility, love, and self-sacrifice, not only in their words, but also in their actions. And if we're going to understand this story correctly, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is driving this change? How are the characters of these men being changed? We pick up the story as Jacob and his brothers are in the land of Canaan. So let's begin looking at verses 1 and 2. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Again, we see famine driving the whole story, and more often than not, in your lives, God uses scarcity to transform you. Famine has been used many times already in the book of Genesis. God used famine to place Joseph in a position of power, and now God continues to drive the story using famine. God is not absent in times of famine. He is present in the trial. And I would say that when we are going through hard times, struggles, one way or another, you can accept that God is using this trial to in some way change you and make you who he wants you to be. Jacob's immediate concern is just to feed his family. His sons have told him very plainly that they were not to return to Egypt without Benjamin. But Jacob does what we all do when we're put in a crucible of life, His initial response is one of denial. Boys, don't you think it's time to get back down to Egypt and get some more food? What are you waiting on? I can see the looks on the faces of the brothers. Dad, don't you remember what we told you? Judah rises up to speak to his dad in verses 3 through 5. Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Jacob was clearly in denial, and he did not want to hear what Judah had to say. But Jacob needed to hear the truth. Not too long before, Judah was the one who needed to hear the truth. Do you remember the story with him with Tamar? When it was exposed his own sin through her workings? Tamar spoke the truth and it broke Judah's pride. Now, Judah will speak the truth to his dad, and God will use it to force Judah to deal with his fears. You see, Jacob wants to deal with what is not true, he wants to live in denial. And Judah's strong words bring him back to the reality of the situation. Judah's words make it very plain that everything depends upon the favor of Joseph. If they see his face, then all will be well. If they do not see his face, then they are doomed. And the one condition to seeing Joseph's face is that they bring Benjamin. You see, seeing the face of Joseph implies having the favor of Joseph the very survival of God's covenant family seems to depend upon the favor of this one man. But as a reader, or at least as your pastor's pondering this text, we are to remember another very much more important encounter where Jacob was brought before the face of another man. Do you remember that one? Genesis 32, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob doesn't seem to remember that encounter right now. At least it doesn't give him any assurance the harshness of his life over the past 20 years have driven it from his mind. But we must not forget Jacob's previous encounter. Think about your own life. You have the words of God's promise of his favor in Christ and you have the harshness of life that hits you all the time and you have the question in your mind, which voice, which Uh, statement will I believe Jacob obtained favor from God years in the past he didn't somehow earn that favor it was given to him because he had faith in the promise of God he clung to the man and said I will not let you go until you bless me and God gave him favor Solely based upon his faith. We're in a similar situation. Your favor of God is based upon your faith in Jesus Christ, period. Nathan made that very clear this morning. Your repentance of your sin and your faith in in Jesus Christ is what earns for you the favor of God, period. And I would ask and challenge you today, do you believe this to be true in your life situations? Do you believe that no matter how hard the crucible of life that God is taking through you through right now, that God's wrath over you has been removed and that you have the privilege of standing before the face of God Almighty? Do you believe that it is that favor alone that controls your destiny? Your destiny does not rest in the hands of any other human being in the world. The only reason that it is important that they get the favor of Joseph is because God has established Joseph to be the means by which they get the blessing. It's not Joseph alone. Yet, like, uh, like most of us, everybody in this room probably knows that on paper. But when it's in the crucible of your life, it's hard to believe. We're not a whole lot different than Jacob. Look at verse 6. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Jo- J- Jacob has no clue of God's favor at this moment. All he can see are the impossible, impossible problems before him. He had tried denying. Now he tries the blame game. How could you be so stupid as to tell this man about Benjamin? And you see, what's going on here is Jacob is struggling to submit his heart to God. And when we're struggling to submit our hearts to God, we like to blame others, don't we? Verse 7. They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that what he would say? Bring your brother down. I like this little section because The brothers defend themselves, but really all their defense proves is that human wisdom is really not sufficient to keep you from struggling with problems in your life. How often do you say to yourself, if I had only known, if I had only been smart enough to to figure this out, or somehow if I had use my wisdom more craftily. We second-guess ourselves. We mentally beat ourselves up because we're not smarter. Anybody ever done that? God does not shine His face on the smart. God shines His face on those who acknowledge their sin and cast themselves on the mercy of God in Christ. Verse 8, And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Judah understands that his dad is acting out of fear. I find it pretty refreshing that Judah does not scold his dad. Instead, he offers him the only assurance that he can give. Judas offers to be a personal pledge Of Benjamin's safety. He will bear the blame if Benjamin does not come back. Of course, you as the reader know, Judah really does not have the power to keep this promise. But the pledge is a good one. Judah is taking personal responsibility, he's acting in love towards his dad. What is more, he continues to respect his dad. He might have, at this moment, he might have said, forget you, dad. We're taking Benjamin and going down. Wasn't too long ago that they, without their dad's position, uh, without their dad's um, blessing, they stole Joseph and sent him down. Judah's unwilling to do that at this point. He implores his dad. He pleads with his father. And you know what this does? It actually springs faith into Judah. I mean, into Jacob, excuse me, getting all these mixed up. Listen, look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Only here do we see Jacob's heart brought into submission to God and only here do we see his faith refreshed Jacob comes to accept the situation for what it is he says if it must be so he has moved past denial he has moved past blame and he says if this must be it must be but Jacob is not fatalistic here His acceptance is driven by his submission to God's will. Jacob instructs his sons to take a very generous gift. Does that not remind you of years past when he sent the gift ahead of him for Esau? Jacob also instructs his brothers to take Benjamin and go at once. He's not dragging his feet. He's acting decisively. And Jacob is able to do this because he is trusting God. And he is surrendering himself to God. We see his trust in his pronouncement of his blessing upon his son's mission. He says to them, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Do you see how different that is from before? All they could think about was we've got to get the man's blessing. Now he understands that it is God Almighty who will bring about The favor of this man. But Jacob's faith, and this often happens in our lives, we turn our faith into something that, a way that we can manipulate God. But that's not what Jacob's faith is. He is trusting his God, but he has also surrendered to the sovereign will of his God. Notice how he ends. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. He doesn't leave his his fate to fate. He's trusting in God. He's, He's acting, doing things. But in the end, he says, if God wants to take my children, he can take my children. Jacob's attitude pleases God. And this is the place where God is driving every one of his children. Can you see in the crucible of your life, the challenging frustrations of your life, how God is calling you to trust in his almighty hand, and how God is also calling you to surrender your life to him? Jacob's circumstances are very, very different than Abraham's, but this is, in essence, the same thing as God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. This is a good point. The powerful, covenant love of God is driving this whole story. We now turn in verse 15 back to Egypt. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, "'Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal "'and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon.'" The men did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. Try to put yourself in Joseph's mind. What would you be thinking and feeling when you finally see your younger brother Benjamin after 20 years of being absent. This is your little brother. The only son of your mother. Surely, feelings of warm affection would be welling up within you. At the same time, you're feeling lingering doubts about your other brothers. It's good that they've brought Benjamin back, but... They didn't leave Simeon to rot in prison. That's good. But maybe it was just the famine. Maybe it's not really a clear sign that they love Simeon. They've taken a long time to return. They brought Benjamin. That's good. Did dad allow them to bring Benjamin? Or did they steal him away? How can I be sure? All these thoughts running through Joseph at this time. And you and I as readers are hoping, I hope you're hoping, that there's resolution, that there's reconciliation, that they come together and everybody's happy. You want resolution to the story. You want Joseph to reveal himself as Joseph. But that's not yet to be. God in this story, like a, like a drama series on TV, he keeps bringing that point of resolution, p- pushing it further and further out, increasing the tension that we feel. We want closure, we want reconciliation, and yet the story will not let us come to it. And this is very purposeful. The story of Joseph does not have to be as long as it is. God wants it to be drawn out this long. Joseph and his brothers are being called by God to be patient. They are being called to wait. So much of our lives, we just want answers. We want it resolved. But God says to wait. And waiting is not easy. Even Jacob is being called upon to wait. Imagine he's left his, his sons go and he's sitting back at home saying, are they ever going to come back again? You see, he said in the moment, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved, but he has to actually restate that every day that he waits on them to return. He has to every day of his life put his heart up on the altar of God. Well, the brothers are in the courtyard. Joseph has left them waiting. And what happens while they're waiting? It often happens to us while we're waiting. Their worst fears grab hold of them. These are not entirely unfounded fears. This situation could turn very badly for the brothers. But like most of our fears, they haven't actually happened yet. We're just afraid that they're going to happen. And the New Testament tells us that they're based in the heart of your heart, saying to yourself, I am worthy of being punished. That's where a lot of our fears come from. The brothers think, what can we do? How can we solve this situation? How can we take control of it? And they approach the steward and explain themselves. In verse 19, they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we had come to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. The brothers are very honest, explaining the truth. But at the end, it's just a story. There's no hard proof. They try to get their story out. Then the brothers receive a very strange response from the steward. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now the brothers are just confused. Surely these words would have perplexed them. The steward says everything's fine. But he doesn't tell them why it's fine. Be calm. Be quiet. The steward's words seem too good to be true. And in the Bible, we often see this happening. God will actually speak to his people through unbelievers. He does this here. And he refers to the sovereign mercy of their God. Does it even speak of Joseph? Now Joseph probably instructed his servant to speak this way. He wants the brothers to be directed to God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what he wants. But from the brothers' perspective, would you not think that this is just some sort of trick? And while these multiple thoughts are swirling around in their minds, out comes Simeon. And again, that's a mixture of thoughts too. On the one hand, he's like, oh, Simeon's alive. He's back with us. It's good. Oh, maybe this governor just wants to put us all together so he can kill us all at once. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread with them there. Isn't it interesting that it's all coming to a a meal that is being prepared for them? The steward takes care of their animals, washes their feet, it's a lot of parallel imagery as to what God does to bring us into his presence as well. They are being treated as honored guests. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. As soon as Joseph arrives, the brothers present him their gift and bow themselves to him. This is the the second instance of the dream. God had revealed this dream to Joseph many years ago. Now he is demonstrating completely a part of anything Joseph could actually do. The dream is being fulfilled in their time. But this story, and I I read a lot of the commentaries and they talked a lot about God's sovereign hand, but... The story is not just about God's sovereign hand. The story is about God's sovereign hand to bring true reconciliation and love between the family. Verse 27 And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. You see how Joseph could care less about the gift? He has more wealth than anybody around. All he wants to know is about his father, he wants to have reconciliation with his brothers and he wants to have fellowship with his brother Benjamin it is the relationships that matter in life again we're hoping for the moment of resolution joseph turns hurries out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered the chamber his chamber and wept there I like to think that Joseph in many ways reflects the heart of our God. I'm reminded of the emotions of the Father and the prodigal son story. Do you realize that your God is not an unfeeling God? I know his emotions are not exactly like ours. I know he is the God of creation and we are only created beans, but I believe God weeps with joy when his children return. God takes great joy in you as a repentant and believing child. Joseph washes his face in verse 31. He comes out. He's controlling himself. He serves the food He doesn't reveal himself. But he eats this meal with his brothers, and it's amazing. And yet it's not quite what we want. They serve Joseph by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. There's a sense where Joseph wants to have this fellowship with his family, but there's still a distance between him and his family. We learn something from this verse that actually propels us into the, the rest of the story, and that is that the Egyptians do not like herders. This is Moses introducing to us another element of God's plan. If you haven't realized this yet, prior to this time, Israel in the sun's problem is that they are intermixing with Canaanites. It's as if God's people do not have the the self-control or the discipline or the love of God to actually keep themselves from going after pagan gods. And so God plucks them away from Canaan, who they had a lot of temptation to intermarry with them, plucks them away from Canaan, take them down to Egypt, and it's not his people's self-control that keeps them pure. It is the hatred of the people around them that they will not intermix with them. And that's just God's mercy, protecting them as a people. But in the story, it also keeps Joseph and his brothers from truly being reconciled. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. And all Joseph is doing in here, he's kind of playing games that he has a knowledge that they don't know, like he's uh, omniscient. He seats the brothers according to their age, and the brothers are all baffled by this he has shown them hospitality, he has shown them that he is gracious, he is a good host, all of these things. All of this would make it that much worse if they were to go and betray Joseph. And that's really going to be the next story, next chapter. Portions were taken to each of them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Joseph does here something very purposeful. The one thing that he is still uncertain of is whether or not if he shows favoritism to Benjamin that it will evoke in the brothers jealousy and hatred. And so he gives Benjamin five times as much food In this way, Joseph singles Benjamin out as the favored one. He knows this will push their buttons. And this raises an important question for you and I. Does God have the right to honor the brother or sister sitting next to you over you? All the brothers have a seat at the table. All of them are enjoying the favor of Joseph. But does Joseph have the right to give one brother more favor than another? And the Bible's answer is yes. I don't know how that's going to work in eternity. I haven't figured all that out. I know that every spiritual blessing belongs to every member of the body of Christ. But somehow within the body, God is able to give one person more honor than another. He can do this. And part of what God is doing in the sanctification of your soul is helping you to not be jealous. Oh, what a joy it will be one day when someone else is exalted and we are just as happy for them as we would be if it were us. There's a lot of stuff in this chapter. Can you recognize the hand of God as he takes you through the crucibles of your life? Can you just recognize that? Do you believe that the outcome of whatever's happening in your life depends more on the favor of God than the favor of anyone else in your immediate surroundings? Do you believe that it is through your repentance and faith alone that you derive the favor of God, not through how many good things you do? Think about your present situations, your present struggles. How is God calling you to surrender what you love to him? How is God calling you to wait? In what way is God calling you to remove the jealousy from your heart and replace it with true love? It is the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that is driving all of these things in the story, and it is exactly what is driving your life. You see, in all this, it's not about whether they get the blessing of Joseph. It's not about if they don't even die of starvation. God is preparing his people to live eternally before his face. That's what life's about. That's what he's doing in your life. That's why your life is terrible at times. Because he's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. That's what he's doing. That's what his steadfast love is and faithfulness are doing for us. Amen.